I'm guessing that you probably haven't heard the name Cleary Walters, but I'm also guessing that you've run into some version of her somewhere. There could have been Nora Jansen, a character in Piper Kerman's nonfiction memoir, Orange is the New Black, or maybe like some lesbians I know, you have a little crush on Alex Voss, the bespectacled rogue in the fictionalized TV series, also Orange is the New Black. But then maybe you know Cleary Walters, who is the woman I got to speak to just recently via Skype, who's written her own account of her experiences as a convicted drug smuggler in her new memoir, Out of Orange, Cleary Walters. The animals, the animals, trap, trap, trap till the cages fall. Is this as confusing to you as it is to me? Absolutely. I have no idea who I am. <laughs> no, it's not actually confusing. The further you get away from me, the more villainous I become. When you read Piper Kerman's book about her time with you as part of a, well, a drug conspiracy smuggling heroin, and then later on her life in prison, how did that strike you? Did that seem to be an accurate recreation of your memories, or was it very different? Well, my first reaction was indignation because she compared me to a, a French bulldog or something. And then I realized quickly that she was actually changing my appearance. So I got past the insult very quickly and onto the story. I did not mind her depiction of me. I could sense that she was taking the reader on a journey with her. And I understood her journey. And her journey definitely started with wanting to drown me in a toilet and blaming me for everything that went wrong in her life, especially the going to prison part. More than anything, I was thrilled to see her get a book published that her experience would ultimately culminate into such a positive outcome. When you saw the TV show that was based on her book, did that at all ring true to you or did that seem even farther away? That was a weird experience. The character Alex Vaz couldn't possibly be farther from the truth in every way, shape, or form. But I could see myself in the character even still. Where did you see yourself? I saw myself in prison, for one, in those khakis, for another, and in the relationships between the prisoners and between the prisoners and the guards. That was something that I lived through and lived with for a very long time. So even a fictitious and lesbian bed and breakfast-esque depiction of that time was a bit nerve-wracking. It's like watching a nightmare. But you binge-watched it like the rest of us, it sounds like. Yeah, I did. <laughs> when all of this came out, and this, this suddenly became a big central part of our culture in many ways, prior to that, had you planned to write about your own experience, or had you wanted to sort of walk away from that? Well, I had always hoped to be a writer. I wrote three novels while I was in jail, but no, I never intended to make my own story public. In fact, the desire to keep my story from becoming public is why I never attempted to publish any of the novels that I had written previously, because it seemed likely that if those books ever did well, that it would come out why I was so well-versed in the material I had written about. Had you been keeping this part of your life secret? I was keeping it secret from my colleagues. When I got out of prison, I had planned on going back to San Francisco and back to the software industry in Silicon Valley, where I had a fairly well-established career. But as things turned out, I had to come back to Cincinnati, Ohio, to take care of my mother. 
And Cincinnati, Ohio is a, a bit more conservative than San Francisco. And I had to tell each employer that I applied with that I had been in prison and that I had a felony record because disclosure is a requirement of your supervised release. So it took me two years to finally find an employer that would hire me in spite of that ugly mark on my record. After having been hired, I did not, you know, sit around and revel in the salacious details of my dark and seedy past. So when the show came out, the first thing that occurred to me is, oh boy, this is going to be a hit. And it's a story that's based on a memoir. So when the fans become fans, they're going to do what fans do. They're going to dig for more details about the real people and guess who they're going to find. After I was done with my binge, I did a little ritual that I had done weekly for as long as I had been out and searched for my own name at Google. For as long as I'd been out, nothing ever came back. But within hours of the release of Orange is the New Black, when you searched my name, my mugshot was staring back at me. Let me make one thing clear. Being employed is also a condition of your supervised release. Anybody who gets out of prison and is on probation, on paper, on supervised release, any of these things, you leave with a deep-seated paranoia that something that you cannot control is going to be the thing that screws you up and gets you violated and sent back to prison. I figured if a crazy thing was going to come screw me up, it would certainly be this. (laughs) I decided to get in front of it and went into my boss the Monday after that horrifying weekend that I didn't sleep at all through and told her, you know, the book I told you about, well, it's a show now. Basically, I was preparing her for the fact that she was probably going to have to fire me. And when I said that, because I didn't want to get her in trouble and I didn't know if the company had the appetite for now housing a infamous lesbian drug smuggler having sex in everyone's living room is a bit different than just checking the felony box. But she laughed and assured me they weren't going to fire me, and I broke it down into tears. Has this been a liberation for you of a kind? It's been an enormous liberation. I had absolutely no concept of really how heavy all of my secrets had become. But being thrown out into Front Street, so to speak, where I have no secrets left. And certainly after writing a memoir, I have no secrets left. It's, it's probably as liberating as when I came out. I want to talk a little bit about your relationship with Piper. In her book and in your book, if I may be honest, you both seem at times a little cagey about what your relationship was actually about. I just wanted to ask you, what did that relationship represent to you? A love affair that was interrupted. It could have been more, but it didn't have time to be more. She came to her senses, decided to get away from the whole drug smuggling gang clique that we were a part of and everything that it represented. But we had gotten an apartment together in San Francisco. She knew that I couldn't extricate myself quite as easily as she had done. The end game was that I would go to San Francisco and we would live happily ever after. That didn't happen. She left in the middle of one of your jobs, correct? Correct. And when did you see her next? In the Federal Transfer Center in Oklahoma City 12 years later. She was angry at you. (laughs) And she says that in her book, and you said that in your book. How did that strike you? She had a right to be angry. It's not an easy thing processing when you get thrown in jail and and you have to go through all of this stuff. It's really difficult 
owning up to your own guilt, owning up to your own culpability in your own life. And I had gone through the same struggle. I blamed everyone in the sun, you know, the agent who arrested me. Oh, it was his fault. I should have never trusted them. The basic, I did this, is really hard to get to. And I did give them her name. Never had an opportunity to sit down and explain to her, here's why I gave them your name. Here's what happened. If I had not done it, it would not have changed her fate. It would have changed mine, but it would not have had any positive or negative impact on her fate. But you made amends with her when you were at that transfer center. We had an opportunity to really discuss things. There's not much else to do in the MCC in Chicago other than play gin, rummy, watch CSI, and talk about why you shouldn't drown me in the toilet. (laughs) We resolved as best we could. It sounded in the book like what began in the early 90s grabbed you in ways that you couldn't have imagined beyond just the fear of incarceration and all of this, that you were not really in much control of your life from the moment that you made that choice to the minute that you got let off of probation. Pretty much that in a nutshell describes the last 20 years of my life. Going back to the beginning, how did you get involved in the heroin smuggling? My younger sister had a fiancé who was a Nigerian. He was very wealthy and an exporter. I was told he was an exporter of oil and rice and illicit diamonds. The guys that my sister hung around and lived with worked for this guy smuggling diamonds into the United States, and I didn't understand why, but it sounded pretty cool. Make a long story short, because the longer story is in the book. I asked to work and said yes to it. By the time I found out it was heroin I would be smuggling, I was already down the rabbit hole. What do you mean by down the rabbit hole? I was in Africa and in Europe, and my ticket home and my ticket there was purchased by the Nigerian drug lord. And the way out of it was to just finish the first trip and get home. I mean, there were other ways to get out of it. I just didn't have the sense to do it. I couldn't imagine calling, you know, mom and dad and saying, hey, mom, dad, we're in Africa. I have my little sister with me. Yeah, we got to come home. Help. It just seemed to me like something that I could clean up myself, get home and correct things. But that was naivete. Did having your sister involved, who also was one of your co-defendants and served time in prison, did this damage your relationship? How is your relationship with your sister at this point? My relationship with my sister is perfect as it's ever been. We're very close and very loving. And that's what the Nigerian took advantage of. He never threatened me personally. He threatened her to me. Which is a way to control you. Oh, yeah. It's a perfect way to control me. He he did the same tactic with all of the co-defendants. It was not that he ever threatened anyone directly. It was that he had this thing where he would collect a picture and the contact information of one person from each person who worked for him. That was his leash. And it sounds like he used it regularly. Yes. When he wanted to remind you that he had that control, what were the kinds of things that would trigger that? And how would he remind you? He reminded me once by having my sister call me to tell me that he wanted to get in touch with me. And at the point my sister called me, she had broken up with him and hadn't had any contact with him in a while. Just reaching out through her is really all he had to do to remind me because I knew how hard she had worked to make that separation from him. 
And she didn't know that he was dangling her safety as the carrot to keep me moving. How did you get out? Well, I didn't get out. What happened is two guys, one in Chicago and one in San Francisco, ended up getting arrested or caught coming into the country. And after that happened, the whole operation shut down for a while. Did you feel done? Oh, yeah, I felt very done. I felt very done. I was broke and happy as a lark to be free of it. For a little while, I worked in restaurants and I was teaching myself HTML and web design and ended up building a company that created one of the first distance learning pilots for the Department of Education in Vermont. And it was about a year and a half, almost two years later that I was on my way to the bank to cash the first of what would have been many checks for my new career when I was arrested. How long was it before you actually found yourself in prison from that time that you were arrested? Just about seven years. I guess the intention was they arrested everybody, and I don't think they meant for this to take seven years, but everybody pled guilty with the exception of one co-defendant. And part of our plea agreement was that we would testify where necessary. They wanted to get the drug lord. They had him in London, but he fought extradition. You seem to, in the book, have regretted the way that you trusted the federal agents around the time of your arrest. Talk a little bit more about that. When they arrested me, they told me that they were essentially arresting everyone without qualifying that statement. The first thing that I thought of is, okay, well, if they're arresting everyone, who is going to assure the drug lord that we're not talking? One of two things happened when you were arrested, as far as I knew. You were either given an attorney, the drug lord would pay for your attorney and pay for all of your expenses, and you would sit quietly and not give anyone up and you would be handsomely rewarded for your silence. Or he'd finish you. He'd kill you. What somebody had to be available to go collect the money for lawyers, which is a lot of money, and to let him know that nobody was talking. But if they were arresting everyone, then the only conclusion I could draw is that anyone who was taken into custody would be dead. He claimed he had people that He could get to us in the prisons. That's not a difficult thing to believe. My first thought was my sister and the hope that they hadn't gotten to her yet. If they had gotten to her, then we were all in jail. We were screwed. So in my panic, I asked for help, explained to the man who arrested me that what they were doing was going to get us all killed and pled for their help. I ended up doing a proffer with the district attorney in San Francisco with the understanding that if the proffer substantiated the need for protection, they would certainly get everyone the protection they needed. No protection ever occurred. So you were motivated really by just protecting people and not necessarily thinking in terms of reducing the time that you would serve. No, we hadn't even talked about sentences at the point that I talked to them. My talking to them was pure self-preservation and help for my sister. My primary goal was to get the agents to my sister before Elaji got to my sister. What should you have done differently? Shut up. (laughs) Not said a word. Waited for my lawyer. When I was in law school, there were two things I remember very clearly from my criminal law class. And one of them was, things will never go better if you talk, no matter what they say. And I thought about that as I was reading your book. Yeah, I mean, in all actuality, the talking that I did do did not reduce my sentence. It increased my sentence. 
One of the most moving parts of your book to me was your description of daily life as an inmate and the little indignities that seem to define that. Could you say some more about that? They systematically pick you apart, one little piece of you at a time. They take it away. They take away your name. Everyone calls you by your last name. Everyone who's staff, anyway, calls you by your last name. They take away your, your style. You wear the same clothes. By the end of the first week, whoever you thought you were, you, you just, you're nobody. They won't even look you in the eye, which is a very subtle but really powerful tool to use against a human being. Try it. Go out on the street and imagine, just walk by someone and smile at them, and they'll at least acknowledge you. Their eyes will turn in your direction. Imagine that nobody will even look at you. And if you say hi or you cry or you lay down and you're dying on the floor in front of them, they won't even look at you. That was, for me, the most, that was, drove me nuts. How do you survive that? You look inward, you find yourself, you acknowledge yourself, you find a program and you find a reason to be. What I did is I I found a way to make the time count constructively for myself. Initially, I was going to go to school while I was inside, and I figured, heck, I'll get a doctorate by the time I get out. After learning how that's not quite as easily done as it is said, I decided to write and wrote and I wrote and I wrote and I wrote. I wrote three novels that are probably actually six novels. Are those novels going to see the light of day now? They are. It's kind of an exciting fallout from all of this is that these books that I wrote will actually be published someday. You also had some love affairs in prison. I did. I had two absolutely wonderful affairs. I won't talk about the first one because I want to respect the privacy of the person I had it with. But the second one, I don't need to worry about that because she had asylum in the U.S., from a Slavic nation, and you know how they feel about homophobes. Oddly, she was as much a homophobe as any of the Slavic folk that I'm referring to. Even after we were madly in love, she still was a homophobe. (laughs) Are you in touch with either of them? I am. I'm in touch with Tatiana. Interesting, the gay marriage equality thing might actually be like the coolest thing since Wonder Bread. Well, I think so. I might be able to get her back to the country. (laughs) So you're in regular touch with her. Has her thinking evolved? We have not seen each other as of August 5th. It'll be 10 years, but we still have cyber sex. (laughs) (laughs) Well, of course, you know, inquiring minds want to know. But so if you want to share anything about that, go right ahead. Well, we intend to see each other before the 10 year anniversary. That's wonderful. You also brought something else back from prison or someone else. Yes, I did. Patches, her full name is Princess Callie Patches McGillicuddy III. She had the same release date as I did. She hitched a ride with me on the plane and came back to Cincinnati. And to be clear, she was a cat. Yes, she was a cat. (laughs) Not a princess. Patches was a stray cat that lived on the grounds of the Dublin camp. When I was moved from the higher security FCI over to the camp, the first being that I encountered was this kitty cat sitting on the porch of one of the buildings. 
And we fell madly and instantly in love. And we never separated until she passed away. You talk a little bit about the relationships that the women had with some of the animals that they were tending or even some of the wild animals. Was Patches one of those animals? Oh, she certainly was. She passed away in December and I posted something on Facebook. That cat had more friends than I do. (laughs) The women loved, you know, some of the women hate cats and they were not particularly friendly. The guards are jackasses to cats, but the women for by and large loved the cats. They would feed them, take care of them. Noah's Ark has a grant program that covers their food and their veterinary expenses. There's usually a inmate or two assigned to feeding the cats. They have these little like wooden homes that the inmates build for them. Patches had a carrier, so she was kind of fancy to begin with because she had a mobile home. You know, they especially loved Patches because Patches proved to be a wily little creature. She used to sneak into the to the cells. Well, Patches would sneak in after dark, sneak down the hall, <laughs> sneak into my room and jump up onto my bunk. On the, When they would come around, they'd count us at midnight, then again at like two or three in the morning, and then again at five or something like that. Every time <clears throat> you hear the count, people coming, and you hear them by their cues jangling and stomping feet. Patches would either duck under the covers or she would jump down onto the table and hide behind the curtain until the count was done. What would you like people on the outside to know about life inside? I would like them to know that it is actually human beings that are inside. It's not criminals. Many of the people who are in jail did, in fact, commit a crime. So they are criminals, but they're human beings first. And 80% of them are nonviolent first-time offenders. And when I hear people talk about the prison population or the massive incarceration of people, there's a constant reference to criminals. And I think that that is a way to marginalize a huge number of human beings. They are people with families, with brothers, sisters, daughters, sons, mothers, fathers. And when you incarcerate a single individual, you are actually putting that entire family away. It has to stop. Something has gone terribly wrong. We have increased our prison population just amongst women by 800% since 1987. Now we're talking about the privatization of prisons, which means that we're basically creating a, a commodity of human beings. And then one of the things that they show in Orange is the New Black is the, the panties, the Victoria's Secret-like panties operation. That's a third world workforce right here in River City. That is not a fantasy. That's not Genji Cohen coming up with something like that. That is a reality. No, that's, that's the norm. Yeah. At, where I was at, at Dublin, they had a call center where they were paying inmates a dollar an hour to call people and sell them condos. You've talked about the nonviolent drug offenders and how so many of the people in prison are the people that have drug convictions. In the time that you were involved in smuggling heroin, did you see the connection between what you were doing and the women that you were now in prison with? I didn't see that connection until I was in prison with them. And when I did see that connection, I saw myself as a monster, forever having been even a cog in the wheel of that monster. And when I talk about a monster, 
I mean both sides of that machine. It requires drug lords and it requires the American justice system. Both of those are necessary for this to work. Do you feel like you've done your time? I feel like I've done several people's time. (laughs) Well, then let me ask you another version of that question. Was the sentence that you received appropriate for what you did? Um, no, no, it was not. I don't believe that victimless crimes like drugs are appropriate, that the sentences that they're giving out are appropriate. I say a victimless crime, and I use that term loosely because I know that there are many victims of drugs, but there are also many victims of tobacco and many victims of alcohol. We don't put Johnny Walker in jail for 10 and 20 years. We did, we did, and that didn't work because when we did do that, we created the gangs of Chicago. Prohibition doesn't work. So back to your question about how did I feel when I saw the connection between myself and those women, I felt like a monster and have made a concerted effort at trying to get my story out there so that people can read my story, hopefully learn from it, and not make some of the same mistakes in judgment that I made. You thank Piper at the end of your book. You call her strong, and it seems that you've made peace on some level. Are you still in touch with her? Yes, I'm still in touch with her. We're still good friends. Do you think that you share something special now, or is that a stretch? No, that's not a stretch. We have basically survived the same horrendous wreck. We've waited 20 years to be both in the light at the end of the tunnel, and we're both there. We weren't allowed to talk to each other for more than a decade, and boy, things certainly happened in that decade. We have a lot to talk about. We're just letting everybody else in on our conversation. Yes, indeed you are. After all this, do you wish that you had done anything differently? Yes, absolutely. I wish the very first time my sister told me a story about smuggling diamonds and I didn't believe that she was telling me the truth. I wish I had believed her. I wish I would have dragged both her and myself home and hit reset. What is next for you? Next is another nonfiction. I'm not sure of the name, but I know the content and I think the name is going to be something like Green Card 2. Cleary Walters. And you- 